This is Unaided, the brand building podcast brought to you by Leakside, a team snap company. Get ready to learn about brand marketing strategy from the experts. Here's your host, Evan Brandoff. Hello, and welcome to the Win Grin podcast. I'm your host, Evan Brandoff. Today, we welcome John Engelhart onto the show. John is the Senior Vice President and Chief Communications and Marketing Officer at the Hospital for Special Surgery, the world's largest academic medical center focused on musculoskeletal health. Let's get into it. John, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Evan. Well, you've achieved so much in your career and had so many interesting experiences, and I'm excited to get into a lot of them. But first off, I want to go back in time to middle school John. What was middle school John like? Well, middle school John was known as Engie. And Engie Engie was, as I suppose I am still today, awkward, nerdy, in a small town in Western Massachusetts called Longmeadow. White picket fences, old churches, the drill. And not athletic, small social circle, and kind of assumed that that was going to be my world forever. And one sibling, a younger brother, and I played ice hockey and tennis. The part of my story that my children didn't catch is that I was really bad at ice hockey, but they heard that, oh, well, we play ice hockey. So they all went on, became ice hockey players and did far better than their father ever did. So I've enjoyed hockey more vicariously through their exploits, but that's where, so Western Massachusetts. Do you still play any racket sports? I play tennis, not enough enjoy tennis, but don't get out enough. We'll have to play some time. I also got into pickleball the last couple of years. Pickleball. That's, I haven't yet, but I'm fascinated by it. And for all kinds of reasons. So I'm eager and impressed. Look, if you're playing pickleball, it's that much cooler. So I'm going to give it a go. (laughs) There you go. Thank you. So from Western Mass, small town, then went to Syracuse, which I feel like was probably a big jump, a shock to the system at that point. And what I find so interesting is that you were the GM of the student radio show. Were you on air at all? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was general manager of one of two student radio stations. It was a university radio station. One is the sanctioned by the Newhouse School of Public Communications, which is famously the best. the best in the nation. And then there was this other station, which was a commercial student owned and operated commercial radio station. That's WJPZ which, by the way, has brought to the world lots of, self not included, but lots of really remarkable and very talented radio talent, on-air broadcasters and administrators. But yeah, I went and started doing the overnight shifts, thought that was interesting, had fun, and wound up doing the sales and then as manager of the station. So at university, I excelled at extracurricular. I think extracurricular was my actual major, and radio was part of that. Yeah, I think Kenny Albert came out of that program, which is impressive. But that's interesting. Hearing about middle school, John was a little shy from a small town and then getting on air. That must have been a big step to step out of your comfort zone in order to do that. Yeah, it was a big. I mean, I am an ambivert, the expression where you're kind of fundamentally an introvert, but you can do the extrovert thing. And I discovered the extrovert part with my first girlfriend in high school. And that gave me confidence to go out and experiment and become a bit more social. And then in the course of four years at Syracuse, I became perhaps a little too social and radio was part of that, but I enjoyed it. It was fun. You could have both the solitude of being alone, 
but also engage with a lot of people and, um, and learn a lot. So it was fun. You have the perfect voice for radio. I could imagine you signing off. It was amazing. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but coming from you, I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> so after school, things start getting interesting. You were the MD at a PR firm owning Hong Kong and China. How does one go from Syracuse to then a couple of years later, owning Hong Kong and China at a PR agency? Well, the, a key in-between part involves a roller coaster. <laughs> like literally a roller coaster. So in the course of my time at Syracuse, I had a summer job at what is now Six Flags, New England. And at the time it was Riverside Amusement Park, which is in Agawam, Massachusetts. Great summer job. And I had the good fortune there of getting an opportunity to work in the front office. And I happened to wind up working in the marketing group and had that as a job at Syracuse throughout the whole time I was there, senior year, I had this remote job supporting marketing. And then when I graduated, when I left Syracuse, I just continued there, quickly realized I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go to New York. Somebody at my bosses at Riverside knew the right person in New York. I went there, got a job, and less than two years later, got transferred through a very big agency through Ogilvy, had this incredible opportunity to go abroad. And at the age of 24, was sent to Hong Kong as director of client service for a public relations firm, for what was then the third largest public relations firm in Hong Kong. And the tons of dumb luck being in a great place at the right time. I love it. It was literally a roller coaster. Literally a roller coaster. Can you speak any other languages? I cannot. And I lived in lots of places, tried, but no, never, never did. Yeah. So where else have you lived abroad? Lived 15 years altogether abroad, 10 years in Asia. The first and largest chunk was in Hong Kong. And then from there, moved to Bangkok, Thailand. And then from there, I moved into a regional job where I was supposed to go back to Hong Kong, but I didn't want to go backwards. And so everybody kindly agreed to let me live in Singapore as long as I promised to come to Hong Kong every week, which I did. So yeah, Hong Kong, Bangkok, Singapore, and then from Singapore, moved to London where I was for five years, and then back to America. Got it. Having lived so many different places abroad and then coming back to the States, what unique advantages do you feel like you have from having spent time in different countries abroad, specifically for your career? Well, I think spending that time abroad, and especially spending that time abroad at the beginning of a career, a lot of people that do go abroad go at the end of their career when they can be insulated from the rest of the world. So they go and they're chairman of this or CEO of that and whisked around and, and really insulated. And a lot of people that go abroad, which always was surprising to me, really what they want to do is they wanted to come back to America for vacations. And being young, being junior, I was just really fascinated by the communities that I was in. And so I dove deep everywhere. I spent a lot longer time there than was planned. And it was also very humbling going there and really have it be in your face all day, every day, how much you don't know. And I think I'm just naturally curious in culture and people and psychology. And so all of that just gave me an appreciation for the fabric of community and to bring humility and curiosity to how different people think and work and how that can manifest in different cultures, whether it is the difference between 
Malaysia and Indonesia or Rhode Island and Connecticut, because there are differences everywhere. And the way communities work, the way people behave, people are universally the same, but also universally different. And so all of that kind of just opened, especially coming from the background that I did, where it was all so unexpected. And the other piece, I mentioned a roller coaster, it was also a girlfriend who has become my wife of now almost 36 years, whose family had lived abroad. She grew up in Europe. And so that kind of opened my mind to the possibilities and also kind of how to do it right. And so it was the gift of those inspirations that opened those possibilities and all of that learning. I love that. And the United States is a melting pot. And being able to live abroad, understand different cultures, how different people act and think, to your point, even though people are universally similar, those learnings must help you so much in being back in the States and how to speak to so many different potential consumers at HSS. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. And, and I think fundamentally, it teaches humility and curiosity. And I think those are two characteristics that are not always common or as strong. And I say that from a point of humility. I need to do a much better job of being better at both. But I think those are two characteristics that are not always as strong as they could be among marketers. And all day, every day, just the reminder of the importance of humility and curiosity, real curiosity. So correlated to humility and curiosity, in your pre-interview... You mentioned that if you were to teach a college course, the topic would be unlocking the potential for strategic creativity, which I think those two attributes align with. But first off, how do you define strategic creativity? Well, creativity as in creativity that solves a problem Mm -hmm. or meets a need. There's lots of whimsical or indulgent creativity, like this is cool, or we can do this, which is great. It's fabulous. But I think there is an opportunity and really a need for more creativity in problem solving. And I think that capability exists in more people than they realize. And there are disciplines and processes that can bring that out in people. And it not only is it helpful at at solving problems, advancing causes that are important to you, but also it's very personally rewarding and fulfilling. It's a way that all of us can have a greater impact. So I'm in perpetual pursuit of being better at strategic creativity, finding and exercising what's within me. And I think that potential exists in pretty much everybody. Which we were talking about before the call, how everyone on your team is incredible, not only good people, but they're all curious and think strategically. And I'm curious what sort of frameworks, you mentioned that there's certain frameworks that you could do in order to bring that out of your team. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Is it a certain way you structure meetings? Is it a certain cadence of feedback? How do you bring that creativity and problem solving out of your team? Well, I think, and again, I sell this, that we're on a journey to do it. Mm-hmm. There's no part of this that we can't and don't need to do a better job of. There's no secret in any of this. A lot of this is really well-trodden stuff going back to the work of Edward de Bono. But you do it pretty well, so we could learn a lot from you. Well, we do do it, but I think it is what we try to do a good job of is first and foremost, having a real understanding of the marketplace or the universe in which we're working and how it works and why it works that way. What are the influences upon that? And then secondly is... And that all of this involves a lot of just good kind of fundamental detective work, but really getting smart about that and not over relying 
upon specialists. Specialization is really good, but when it comes to marketing, in many cases can create more blind spots than bright spots. And blind spots are missed opportunities. And so what we try to do is have a high level of insightful awareness about the domain. And second is make sure that we're asking the right questions. Lots of communications, lots of marketing, and lots of requests that we get are for tactical executions of one form or another. And there's lots of things that you can do, but you have to start by being very focused on what it is that you're trying to make different as a result of whatever it is that you wind up doing. So what impact are you trying to have? As obvious as that is, I think that is the missing piece in a lot of it. And then thirdly is being open and embracing intelligent naivete when it comes to solving those problems. And we structure our communications, we structure processes around that. We work, we've got a great team, not just in our group at HSS, but also obviously across the organization. We've got 6,000 just breathtakingly talented people in all corners of this organization. And we're privileged to work with a number of outside organizations. And we're very inclusive. Sometimes I may be inclusive to a fault, but also we move with a lot of focus and we move with a lot of velocity. And that chemistry tends to be attractive and invigorating to the creative process. So I appreciate all that. And something in particular is you have an extreme, you're very self-aware. I could tell what you're good at, where you have room for improvement. Do you think self-awareness is a learned skill? I think it's an intentional act. Mm-hmm. And so to that extent, yes, I think it's a learned skill. And I think it's a capability that everyone has, but self-awareness is hard and it's really painful. And there's all kinds of reasons why we all, self-included, there are things that we suppress. <laughs> Look, because if I go there, it's going to drag me down from these other things. And I think it is a learned skill to the extent that people can find that going through that pain, if you go through that wall, there's always more good than there is pain and things, pain, things that you wish weren't true. But if you go there, it pays dividends Mm. because going there is on the path to unlocking new possibilities for yourself and things that you're trying to do. So I do think it is a learned skill. Do you think it's a learned skill? I do. I feel similarly. I I thought you answered it really well. I think that everyone is self-aware, but a lot of people put up barriers and it's a process to break down those barriers as you were speaking to. Yeah. And I think self-awareness is going to become increasingly important as a leadership skill, because I think where the world is going, where society is going, where businesses and all institutions are going, and we're on a journey, but there is going to be an increasing imperative and opportunity for genuineness. And in a highly turbulent, change-intense environments, people can lock in for all kinds of reasons, some of them very good, be less vulnerable than they might be otherwise. But breaking through that and really being genuine is going to become increasingly important as a leadership characteristic. So I think self-awareness is you can't be really genuine. If you're not self-aware and if the people around you don't just inherently believe and trust that you're self-aware. So true. Yeah. Being vulnerable with your team is so important. Without trust, people aren't surfacing problems, then they're only going to boil over. So I couldn't agree with you more. That's a really good point. And speaking of being genuine, not only is it important internally with your team, but also 
from putting a marketing hat on, it's so important externally with potential consumers as well. And something that I find so impressive about HSS is you have, I think, over 30,000 Instagram followers, which I didn't look at too many healthcare Instagrams, but I feel like that's a lot. And you have so many good stories from different patients. Well, I'm curious from your perspective, how do you feel you got to a point where you have so many social media followers? Well, I think a couple of things. In a way, and I'll explain this in a minute, HSS was very strong in social before there was social. And for your listeners that may not be familiar, HSS is a health system that is specialized in musculoskeletal health. And at the core of it is this hospital, Hospital for Special Surgery, which has been focused on doing a few things outrageously well for almost 160 years. From a marketing perspective, this is actually a really easy job. It's the easiest job that I've ever, I mean, this is my first job in healthcare. I've marketed Snickers bars and Reebok shoes and American Express cars across the gamut. In the case of HSS, there is this unbelievable alignment of need. Half of all adults on planet Earth, half experience a problem that we solve every single year. So it's a high value problem. And HSS does it. There are lots of great orthopedic providers. HSS, because of the specialization for so long, just does it so well. And so long before I showed up, long before there was social media or Instagram, what was happening here is people were having unusually good and consistently good outcomes. And the way that this place, the way that healthcare works, the way that HSS works, it's not about the TV ads or billboards or Instagram followers. Word of mouth, those are all amplifiers on word of mouth, but word of mouth has been driving HSS since it was founded in a physician's home during the Civil War to treat soldiers and children. It's that word of mouth. And so now technology and culture are helping to amplify that. But it is fundamentally the experience that people have through care here that is why you mentioned patient stories. Patient stories are everywhere. That a relatively small place like HSS has more patient stories on their website than any other hospital on planet Earth is astounding. You know, if you add them all up on Mayo Clinic, which is the most unbelievable institution. You add up all the different patient stories, I think there's like close to 200. There's more than 3,100 stories. And that's not because we've asked people, it's because it's part of the experience that people have. When you feel that you've discovered something that is special and is valuable and is not obvious to others, you share it because you want to help other people. So people are doing what they're doing and the way that they're behaving and engaging on Instagram or in any of the other ways that they have an opportunity to educate. The HSS patients are, they're very proud of what they have done, what they have accomplished together with their clinical providers, but also they want to help other people who are earlier on their own path to figuring out what they can do to learn from their experience. So it really is an act of altruism and whether it's those 30,000 Instagram followers or more than a million unique visitors to the website every single month, more than a million. This is a small place. That is just astounding. But people who are discovering something and then they're sharing it and doing it at a peer-to-peer -peer 
level because that's been the seismic shift in trust where they're not trusting so much claims from on high, but rather what are other people experiencing? Right. Yeah. And HSS is the gold standard. And it's incredible and not surprising that you have so many incredible advocates. I mean, it's one thing to have so many advocates, a high net promoter score. It's another thing to enable them to effectively share their stories with others. As a marketing department, how do you enable these people that have had such incredible experiences to refer other people and share their stories with other people? I think you use the key word. And the first is recognizing opportunities for enablement. Mm -hmm. So in healthcare, for all kinds of obvious reasons, it's very common for providers to ask patients to review them. And will you give us stars, will you give us comments or whatever? And it was in the course of doing, and so HSS could do that, but in the course of kind of the detective work that we talked about earlier, we discovered just the importance of story sharing to the patient's recovery process. And that's where kind of this revelation of an opportunity for enablement. So there's an appetite to do something that is good for the patient and is good for the institution and good for the clinicians and all of the other members of the HSS community. So how can we make it easier for people to do what they want to do already? And that's where we created this forum on the HSS website, which looks and behaves a lot like Facebook or social media. So it's very visual. It's fun and easy to look through. And you can search stories based on not only doctor or condition, but also favorite activity. So if I'm into lacrosse, I can look up people that are lacrosse players and I can, so the opportunity for people to customize their experience, but then to make it easier for people to share their experience. And so it's all online. Obviously there are appropriate and appropriately rigorous controls around confidentiality in healthcare. So their consent processes, all of which are built in the process. But if you go in and online, you can share your story in, in five minutes, click, 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 boom, you can go. And so as people are sitting there, they're waiting for an appointment or they're at home reflecting on their experience or whenever, whenever they're feeling moved at the time and place of their choosing, they can do something that they find. And we researched this and tested it in different ways. And we've evolved it over the past seven years that we've been doing this to really make it a great experience that's consistent with the great experience that they've had clinically and just make it rewarding to them also emotionally. And it's a service that they provide then to other people and they feel good about it. And then it's, so it's like a sprinkler system. So look, I'm really proud of having A, discovered HSS, B, gotten into HSS, C, achieve the outcome that I've gotten. So I'm gonna go and I'm gonna tell my story. And then they also make it easier for me to share my story on right. my social media. And all these different things, it's flywheel sprinkler system, and it just goes and goes and goes. You know, I think there's an important distinction between promotion and marketing and promotion is really about self-interest and marketing is about, in the case of healthcare, it really is about helping people make better decisions. And this as a service patient story sharing as among a lot of different things that we do to make it easier for consumers to make their own decision about what to do about their medical need or question. So interesting. And by the way, I love the term sprinkler system. I've never heard that one before. I'm going to start using that. There you go. So a challenge that I've heard specifically in healthcare marketing is no matter how well you're doing in your campaigns and driving awareness, driving consideration, even driving patient volume, there's always feedback from specific surgeons saying, 
what are you doing for me? Is that a pain point that you experience? It's a pain point, but it's also really super helpful. So my group and I, we're here because of them. And I've worked as a service provider. This is my first job as a client and my first job in healthcare. I've had the privilege of working at the highest levels with just amazing, amazing corporations all over the world and teams and groups. This is the first time where I've really had the privilege of working with such a high concentration of people who by definition, objective definition, really are the best in the world at what they do. Time and opportunity are precious for them. And the responsibility that I have and that my team and I share is to earn their confidence that we are as good at what we do as they are at what they do. And that is a push me, pull you process. They're not experts in marketing, but it's easy for everybody to be an expert in marketing. And so I think there are lots of good, well-intentioned questions, critical feedback, flaming arrows, bullets that are coming from a place, but you got to always be thoughtful. Okay, where is this coming from? And begin with empathy. Say, okay, somebody's really angry with me. Here is a surgeon, a doctor, whatever, who feels that I'm not doing a good job of supporting them and their needs. And yes, that comes with the territory, but understanding first and foremost where it's coming from, then being open to the possibility, they may have a really good point. So what really are they speaking to? And then how best to address this? And it might be addressing it by bringing them to them better understanding, patience, are not always representative of consumers. All patients are consumers, but consumers are what they are before they make the decision to become a patient. And so what happens in that decision? So bringing that understanding and working with the surgeons, the doctors, the other members of the clinical staff so that we learn and that we help them get better, which isn't about being popular. And there's lots of times, I think what I hope they feel is when they feel that we have a discussion where they might not be satisfied with what we're doing or even with the outcome of that discussion. My hope is that they walk away, say, okay, that didn't achieve the change or the outcome that I was hoping for, but I might not like what we're doing, but I do think that they know what they're talking about. So that's what we try to do. So I understand, and I'm excited by the fact that y'all are growing, not only your physical footprint, but digitally as well. So the question I have is, I mean, your brand awareness and reputation is so strong, I assume worldwide, but specifically in the Northeast where you've historically operated for the last, what is it, 160 years? 159. 159 years. As you enter new markets, what are different tactics that you're thinking about deploying to connect to those local communities as you're opening physical locations there? Yeah. So in terms of like, there's layers on that. I won't be boring about it, but it kind of begins with the high ground territory of academics and specialization. So we're an academic medical center. And so academics and teaching is bedrock for us. We provide continuing medical education to tens of thousands of specialists who are all over the world. And in fact, we have a continuing medical education platform. There are medical specialists who are getting their continuing medical education online from HSS in 140 countries today. So it begins with specialists having an appreciation for the fact that quality varies and quality matters Mm. in musculoskeletal care. That's everywhere. That's all over the world. And so when we go into new markets and as we look for 
whether it's for physical presence or digital presence, it begins with that premise that we're on a path and an opportunity to better quality of care. So if the clinical people have that awareness, they're eager to get more of their patients into HSS for things that they don't do themselves. And we do a lot of complex care that other orthopedists don't do. And we also do a lot of revision work. We see way, 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 way too many patients the second time. And so, and that's part of what's driving our expansion and the, the only barrier. So there is demand everywhere. Patients have for a long time, long time, been coming to HSS from all 50 states. There is demand everywhere. It's a matter of how do you scale the quality of care and the reliability of outcomes that we're able to do? How can you scale that? So that's been a model that we've been learning our way into. There's enormous demand. There's demand from employers, from payers who say, look, because it's what we can solve for is a very, very valuable problem. You then go into markets where consumers haven't heard of HSS, but that's turning over that card because you go to Cleveland, people say, I've never heard of all these orthopedists who are around here. I know them. I've never heard of these guys. Who are these carpetbaggers from New York? And part of it is then about just, okay, let's turn the lights on. And turning the lights on is, okay, these are all of your neighbors in Cleveland that come to HSS. Hear from them. So we're not an outsider. Actually, we've been serving your community for a long, long, and don't mean to single out Cleveland. There's some very fine medical centers there. But people from all over the country have been coming here for a long time. So this is really as we expand with whether it's digitally or physically, really first and foremost, it's about making increasing convenience for people that are coming from there anyway. And so if we can make it easier for the person from Bozeman, Montana, so you don't have to come to HSS for every visit. Now you can do some digitally. Now you can do some at our regional location that might be closer to you. So you only have to travel further distances in isolated instances. So it's a super valuable problem. And expansion is really about doing our best to keep up with demand. The demand is colossal, but how do you do that without compromising an inch on the quality of care? It's interesting. There's so much consolidation happening in healthcare, and HSS is one of the last couple remaining independent healthcare providers. As you're expanding, why do it as a standalone entity instead of through consolidation? Great question. And our strategy is really based on integrity, integrity of quality of care. Yeah. And there's no one way of doing that. We obviously, there are, we have lots of opportunities and we are partnering and we're partnering now. We've learned our way into some very, very successful models for collaboration, which we're we're doing different models in places like Stanford, Connecticut, and in West Palm Beach, Florida, and outside Cartagena in Colombia. Different models of collaboration, we're testing and learning. And that's also collaborations that we're bringing into the digital domain as well. So it's not about doing it alone. We can't fulfill our mission alone. So really what you're going to see in the coming years is the more visible emergence of really an HSS ecosystem of providers and collaborators that are unified in purpose to achieving these extraordinary outcomes with extraordinary reliability. It's a little bit like saying, well, why doesn't NASA, if NASA wants to fly more, why don't they just consolidate with an airline? And somebody once observed, made the comments, look, HSS is to other hospitals that do orthopedics as NASA is to airlines. 
So it's the same kind of thing. So how can NASA do what it needs to do? I mean, do NASA and SpaceX someday? But at this point in orthopedics, there is no right. SpaceX. Or actually, I like to think maybe of HSS more as the SpaceX of Karen. And we're just able to move faster. Rothman is the NASA. They're great. There are <laughs> lots of, I mean, Mayo Clinic is every year number two in the nation for orthopedics. And according to US News, and that's based mostly on data, but just by order of magnitude, you look up the US News ranking for orthopedics and you see lots of great providers. What you will see in orthopedics that you will not see in other categories is the magnitude of delta between number one, 12 years in a row now, and we don't take anything for granted. 12 years in a row, number one, HSS scoring a perfect 100 out of 100. And number two in the nation, the mighty Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic, which is a breathtaking. Mayo Clinic scores in the low 80s. Wow. So you have HSS scoring a perfect 100. And number two in the nation, Mayo Clinic, which is fabulous, scoring a B minus. So when I say NASA to airlines, that is not hyperbole. That is a truth. And there is so much in, in that U.S. news score, as you will see, there is an enormous amount of data. That's not a popularity contest. There is an enormous amount of data. So how can you scale that level of performance? So HSS isn't under the commercial pressures of some other institutions that might like to merge. We're really focused with a long-term view on achieving and advancing a standard of excellence that really is really a category of one. Our mission is owing that, a sense of purpose of owing that to the world and being the beacon that people can count on to provide that. Well, John, I am so pumped that y'all are expanding <laughs> because more people deserve access to your incredible yeah, care. They do. My dad alone has gotten, I think, three surgeries from HSS. No second times. So what's the term for? for oh, revision. So there no are, revisions. There are all all unique problems. surgeries. Okay, yeah. good, 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 good. <laughs> and John, you have been just so interesting, fascinating. I could ask you questions for hours, but I know you are very busy. But I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. I think that our listeners are going to get so much out of this episode. And I'm just really excited to see what you and your team can continue doing and learning more about the expansion and just wishing you all the best. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you making the time. And if anybody stuck around, I appreciate them listening. And also thank you to everybody, whether Evan or listeners, just for advancing this conversation around the importance of community, the importance of sharing and just learning from each other. I've learned so much from your previous guests. So thank you for the service that you're providing to all of us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wingren Podcast with John Englehart. As a recap, we discuss the benefits of working abroad, how the excellence of HSS expands outside of the OR, and how to elicit strategic creativity from your team. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Evan Brandoff. See you next time, everyone. Play on. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and leave a rating at leagueside.com slash podcast. For more educational and inspiring content, you can follow Leagueside on LinkedIn and Instagram at leagueside underscore. See you next time.